We have arrived in Genesis. We have entered into a foreign world. I am so excited for this series of podcasts going through the first three to four chapters of Genesis because we are going to be diving into a very confusing, controversial, and unbelievably impactful part of the Bible. And that is the very first few chapters of the scroll of Genesis. And if you have ever read your Bible, chances are you either started by reading Genesis, uh, duh, because it was at the beginning of the book, or you made your way around to reading it. And if you haven't read Genesis, you have certainly heard it be discussed either by your parents, pastors, members of your church, or even non-believers, non-believing teachers or uh, professors who have done classes over Genesis. The bottom line is this, though. If you have heard of Christianity, or if you have not been living under a rock, you have probably heard someone's explanation of what Genesis means. You've heard someone's explanation of its truth value, or how it should or shouldn't shape your view of reality. And Genesis 1-3 through has shaped countless people's view of the origin of life in the universe as we know it. It has shaped many people's view of the step-by-step process that God brought about the universe, and it has also shaped many people's view on the trustworthiness of the Bible, for better or for worse. Every single one of us, whether we know it or not, approach Genesis with questions, cultural assumptions, or expectations that we look for it to meet. And this, this very imposition we make on the text of Genesis is our very first mistake when trying to understand what Genesis is truly telling us. So the question we have today is this. What is the goal of this series? And more importantly, what should our goal be when we are approaching Genesis 1 through 3? And the answer would be this. The goal that we should always have when approaching these texts is to allow them and the authors who wrote them to speak to us on their own terms, with their own understanding of reality, through their own way of communication. And why is this important? This is important because the immediate meaning of a text is what the author intended to convey. It would be wholly irresponsible for anyone to disregard the meaning that an author intended in favor of a meaning that they would want the text to say. And every single piece of literary work is crafted by the author with a specific meaning in mind. And the goal for All of these writings could be to inform, to persuade, to challenge, to teach, to encourage, and the list goes on and on. And as someone who writes out notes for a podcast like this, I can confirm that I have an intended meaning for everything I write. And it would be irresponsible for anybody to just input what they want me to say and what they think I mean instead of just listening to the things I am saying and taking them as they are. And if the reader of a work of literature 
is unaware of the author's context and the world that surrounds them, it will become very easy for the reader to misinterpret the meaning of the text. And also, they could use it in ways that the author never intended it to be used. And this is so important for us to understand as we approach not just Genesis 1 through 3, but the entire Bible. Because the entire Bible is written by authors who have an intended meaning for the text. And yes, we would also acknowledge that this is a divine work, that God had his hand in the mix, but God also used human authors. But back to this point of understanding the context that the author is speaking in and able to derive the intended meaning of something that they write or say. I've given this example before a few podcast episodes in the past, and it's this example of me sending a text message to one of my babysitters. So imagine a scenario where I have a babysitter that's going to watch my two daughters for the night, and I send them this text. I say, quote, do not allow them, my daughters, to eat Starburst. Do not allow them to watch any shows and make sure they hit the hay by 8 p.m. Now, for everyone listening, since you are in my cultural context and we're living in the same period of time, you understand what that message meant. You understand that starbursts are candies. And when I say don't let them watch any shows, you understand that I'm talking about a television show on a big electronic screen. And you also understand that when I say make sure they hit the hay by 8 p.m., you know that the phrase hit the hay means going to bed. However, if this text message was dug up or captured or recepted by a civilization 4,000 years removed, whether that's in the past or in the future, they would probably have absolutely no idea what I was talking about. When they read that I don't want my children eating Starburst, rightfully so, they would probably come to the conclusion that I'm talking about a bursting star, like a star in space that's bursting. When I said, don't let them watch any shows, they may think of shows as being a live, in-person play or performance. And when I tell my children to hit the hay, they will most likely think that I'm telling them to literally hit bales of hay. And I know that this example may sound silly, and you may be thinking, there's no way that this is actually something that would happen in real life. But sadly, this same example is how many of us approach the biblical text. In these ancient texts, we misinterpret Genesis in this very same way, because the biblical authors are using words and phrases and ideas, and ways about speaking about their conception of reality that we just simply don't use today, and we don't understand today. And if we're not careful, we can completely misconstrue the message that they were writing to people at that time that understood what they were saying. And since this is the case, we can safely assume that there will be a lot of misunderstanding in regards to Genesis. If we don't have insight, to an ancient Israeli author's surrounding culture, if we don't have insight to their cosmology and the way that they viewed reality, and if we don't 
have insight to the ancient beliefs that were surrounding them. So anytime that we are reading these texts, we have to be prepared to go on a journey. Because essentially what we're doing is we are taking a trip back in time to the ancient Middle East, and we need to make sure that we are prepared to embark on our travels. Imagine you are planning to travel to a foreign country that you've never been to before. There's two ways that you can go about planning for this trip that you're about to take. You could just buy a plane ticket and wing it. With no understanding of the common language, no understanding of the country's history or culture's background, you could go with no understanding of where things are located or how they may interact differently than you do. But doing this, however, would inevitably lead you down a path of having a not-so-fun and messy vacation. Because you simply wouldn't be able to communicate with the citizens in their native language. You may very well say something or do something that is normal in your culture but is not accepted in theirs. You could get lost and you could get You could find yourself into a bad part of town and this whole experience, because your lack of planning, will be setting you up to have a poor view of what you originally thought was going to be a great trip in a great country. And it all stems from this lack of preparation and understanding of this foreign country and the people that live in it. But there's a second, more responsible way that you could plan your travel. You could do some research on the country's history and culture before you go. You could find out culturally acceptable ways to speak and interact. You could also get an idea of what places you want to go. And most importantly, you could even buy a little language translation dictionary to at least aid you in understanding the key words of this culture. And having this preparation for this trip will allow you to gain understanding of the culture you are entering into. And it allows you to interact with them on their terms, not yours. And this will be our challenge when reading Genesis. And honestly, when reading the entire Bible, because the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. I'm going to say that again. The Bible was written for us but it was not written to us. If we truly believe that the Bible is God's word, we also have to respect the fact that that God chose to deliver his word through human people. And God could have chosen a group of human people to deliver his word in 2022. We would have loved that. He could have chosen a group of people in 1442. He could have chosen a group of people in India, Australia, Canada, Mexico, but he didn't. 
God chose to speak through ancient Israelites that lived three to four plus thousand years ago. And if we are going to honor God's word and God's choice of people that he chose to communicate that word, then we need to be willing to suspend our cultural assumptions and our modern views of reality and how the world works in order to be able to look through a lens of an ancient Israelite, to be able to look through the lens of culture and reality the same way that they did, because God chose them to relay his word. And they had their own language. They had their own view of reality. They had their own uh, cultures that surrounded them that undoubtedly had influences on the way that they viewed the world. And in order for us to suspend our cultural assumptions, we need to come to terms with the fact that the Bible was not written to us. It was written for us, but it was written to a group of ancient Israelites, as far as Genesis goes, who had a very different way of viewing reality. And Genesis would have to be written in a way that they could understand. Also, it was written in an ancient language that I assume nearly no one listening right now or the vast majority of people that read through Genesis do not know ancient Hebrew. And for anybody who speaks multiple languages, you know that there are words in the different languages that do not perfectly translate. There are words in one language that holds meaning that would take an entire sentence or paragraph in another language to explain all that's wrapped up in the one word. And the way that ancient Hebrew works in comparison to any other modern language, including English, is no different. There are words that may have English counterparts that don't properly carry over its full meaning. Or there are words that simply mean something different at that point in time than what they do now. So if we're going to properly understand Genesis and the culture that authored it, then we need to understand the language that they used to the best of our ability. And I know, I am no Hebrew scholar. But luckily, to understand, at least on a surface level, what's going on in ancient Hebrew and Genesis, you don't have to be a Hebrew scholar. All you really need is a concordance. They're all free. Or you can look to Hebrew scholars who are experts in that language. And that's what we will be doing as we go throughout this podcast series. We'll be looking at concordances. We will be citing and looking towards Hebrew scholars who have spent their entire life learning this ancient language. And this is just another part of our preparation for traveling into the world of another culture, into a foreign land. We're going to do our best to understand as much as we can about their context so that we can read the Bible for what it is. One of the biggest challenges that I had really going through Genesis and that every single one of you are going to have as well is for the time being letting go of what your tradition may say about Genesis and simply letting the Bible tell us what it means. Some of your traditions may line up perfectly well with what we discover. But for many, 
you're going to learn new things. And these aren't things that are being made up. They're there plainly in the text. But for many of us, in our modern way of reading and understanding, we have filtered Genesis through our modern lens. And we've completely stripped it of the author's intent and meaning when writing these first few chapters of Genesis. often assume that Genesis is a story about God simply bringing the material universe into existence. And this, unfortunately, is our first cultural assumption that we impose on the text. Because the very way that we, modern people, view reality is guided by our modern scientific understanding of the universe. When we look up at the night sky and we see all those little white dots way up there, we understand that those are stars. And we understand that those stars are big balls of gas that are light years away. And when we look up there, we can imagine and think of the billions of galaxies that have billions of stars within them. And it just seems never ending. We see a picture of Earth and we immediately think of a giant round planet floating in the expanse of space that circles around the sun. And all of this is our cosmology. It's our modern way of understanding reality. And all of this is great. But the problem is, is this is not how ancient people thought of or understood reality. And we'll get into this a little bit more in future episodes. But what we're going to see going through this series is an ancient Israelites' way of describing the cosmos and reality that we would say today is scientifically false. And if we assume that this ancient text, that, that Genesis, is meant to be a science book instead of God's way of giving and revealing theological, metaphysical truth to ancient people, if we expect it to be a science book instead of that, then we will almost always walk away with false conclusions of the truth of Genesis. And the bottom line is this, is that God revealed truth to ancient Israel on their own terms based off of their own understanding. God revealed truth in a way that they would understand, and and in my opinion, this is the best way that God could have revealed truth to anybody. We cannot expect God to just reveal all scientific truth to an ancient group that would have zero chance of conceptualizing or understanding it. Instead, what God chose to do, and this is so loving of God, is that he chose to speak to ancient people in a way that they would understand. God revealed 
his power, his authority, his love, and his truth. In a way that to us, we would say is scientifically false, but to the ancient people that he was revealing his word to, it was 100% perfectly coinciding with the way that they viewed reality. And we not only see this happen in Genesis, and some of you may be wondering, what is he talking about? How, how did they view reality? And we'll get into that. But there, there's a few times in Scripture where God will purposely just allow them to make scientifically incorrect statements because he's revealing a greater truth under the scientific cosmological geography or biology that is being stated in the passage. In one instance of this is Psalm verse or chapter 7 verse 9. David says, "Oh let the evil of the wicked come to an end and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous, O righteous God." Seems pretty straightforward. One thing that we can point out about this, and it'll all make sense in a second, I'll tie it back in, I promise. Uh, ancient people didn't believe that the brain had any real or important function. And we see this when we look at Egyptian mummies. They would keep almost all the organs that they believed were essential for the afterlife, but they would discard the brain. They'd put a hook up the nose, take the brain out, throw it in the trash, because they didn't believe the brain had any function. And Psalm 7 is a great example of just this cultural understanding of biology. Because where it says, you who test the minds and hearts, that's what our English translations say. But in Hebrew, it literally reads, you who test the kidneys and the hearts. The, the, the word that we translate as minds in Hebrew means kidney. An Old Testament scholar, John Walton, says this, that there is no ancient Hebrew word for brain. That's really interesting. And we obviously know from modern science today that the brain has immense function and purpose. And we also know that our thoughts derive from all the things going on in our brain. And so it's really odd for us when we look at the ancient language here to see that they thought that God tested their kidneys in their hearts. God wasn't doing a, a medical checkup on their kidneys to make sure that they were functioning properly. What they thought is that the kidney served as some sort of functioning organ for thinking and having feeling and having emotion. But what we see here is that God did not override their scientific understanding. God did not reveal to David that, hey, I know that nobody else in your entire surrounding culture and civilizations think that the brain actually has function, but I'm just going to reveal this to you, that the brain is actually where your thoughts are. God didn't reveal something to these ancient people that they would have had no conception of understanding, but what God did do is he revealed theological truth through their undeveloped understanding of biology. And that is namely that God is the one that tests our thoughts and our hearts. So with this being said, I think we now have a good starting point, 
a good foundation. If we're thinking about this series as us traveling to a foreign land, a foreign country that we've never been, I think we've got a good plan going here. We've got a good plan going. We, we know that we need to understand the text for what it is. We know that the authors of this text were ancient people, far removed from our modern ways of understanding reality, and they spoke a different language. And if we can just suspend our cultural assumptions in our understanding of reality, and our understanding of the universe and how the planets move and all of these things, if we can just put our cultural assumptions aside in order to approach Genesis 1 through 3 on the author's own terms so that we can honor the worldview that the biblical authors had, if we can just do that, I think we will really be able to understand what these authors are trying to get us to see in the way that they viewed reality. And we will start by examining their conception of heaven and earth. And these are going to be some of the first few verses of Genesis chapter 1. And we'll get into that next week.